0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin, and I'm thrilled that you guys would choose to spend some time here with me today. I hope everybody is doing well mentally, physically, and emotionally. I myself am doing considerably better since the last time I streamed. Last week, I was at the beginning of what, well, I didn't know this at the time, but I was at the beginning of what was the sickest I had been in a long time not to toot my own horn, not to um, gloat about my immune system, I suppose. But these past two years or so, I've gone without getting COVID, um, largely due to that being that I really also just don't go outside that frequently. But fortunately, I have not gotten COVID. Um, Really, the only kind of ailments I get, I deal with seasonal allergies, of course. And then since I live in the lovely state of new york which has which has probably the most temperamental climate in the united states every so often we'll have a really hot day in like march where it'll be like 80 degrees and then it'll go back to being seasonably cold like i'm talking like 40 45 or the inverse or the same thing happens in october and like that temperature change really fucks me up but this past whatever man I really don't know what I was dealing with um I think it was kind of just like allergies on steroids like throat was shot I was congested I was sneezy I was sniffly just overall not that great of a time I really couldn't talk either which fucked me up more than anything else because I mean I'm here doing a podcast I'm live on Twitch like I love to talk I love to just hear the sound of my own voice despite um not many others or despite the fact that probably not many others like to hear it. But anyway, getting on with that, since I have been sick, as we know, the NBA Finals have begun. The Golden State Warriors going against the Boston Celtics in what has or what had the potential or still has the potential to be one of the all-time great final series. It has started off quite weirdly. Both of these teams are so talented, so well-matched, so... um. Just very, very clearly the two best teams in the NBA at this point. And Game 1 compared to Game 2, both of these games were drastically different. As we know, Game 1 this past Sunday, I believe it was, no, um, Thursday, I'm sorry. Game 1 on Thursday started, we had some dominance by Steph Curry. The Golden State Warriors were clearly in control of this game for the first three, three quarters before ultimately collapsing behind or ultimately collapsing thanks to a barrage of Celtics offense. I think the final tally in the fourth quarter was forty yeah forty to sixteen. A 24 point swing in the fourth quarter that allowed Boston to bring home the victory 120 to 108. Uh Boston shot nine of twelve from three in that quarter. Jalen Brown, Al Horford absolutely carried the offense. Al Horford in particular was sensational. And what made this game even more frightening at least from Golden State's perspective was that Boston jumped out to such a commanding start despite the fact that Jason Tatum had one of his worst games in these playoffs finishing with just 12 points on a 3 of 17 shooting 3 of 17 shooting from the all NBA forward for the Boston Celtics however a large reason that Boston was able to mount this comeback was due to Jason Tatum's playmaking, finishing with 13 turnovers to just two assists, an assist-to-turnover ratio of, what, like six and a half to one. This this aspect of Jason Tatum's game, his playmaking ability in conjunction with his defense has really elevated him to another level in terms of NBA player rankings as we know if you're building a team around you know a forward a wing player in particular this wing player has to be able to facilitate he has to be able to make plays for his teammates because when you're someone like Jason Tatum or you're someone like Giannis or you're someone like LeBron or Kawhi or any of these premier forwards you have to be able to find the open man make the easy play and just create buckets for your teammates especially when your shots are not falling whether they're not falling because of just you you being off you being out of rhythm or because the defense isn't allowing you to get up those shots and Tatum did a spectacular job of finding the open man making the right read and really just picking apart a Warriors defense that for the last handful of years has been one of if not the most talented talented defenses in the NBA especially now especially now considering that Draymond Green is here. Klay Thompson's healthy. You have Andrew Wiggins. You have Kavon Looney. There are a lot of great individual and great one-on-one defenders that Boston is going up against, and for Tatum to piece them apart like they were like, dude, he he was he tailored them like he was fitting a so, like he was fitting pants for himself, just doing whatever he wanted, knowing how he wanted to do it, and that is ultimately what allowed Boston to pull away with this victory, of course, also buoyed by shooting 51% from three. Now, conversely, Golden State ultimately fell apart towards the end of the game because it was almost the opposite for Golden State, at least in regards to their players performing. Steph Curry was undeniably the best player on the court for um, the Golden State Warriors, just doing typical Steph things. I was watching him, and I'm like, Steph is having one of those games and have it, and looking like he's going to have a series where he takes home the Finals MVP regardless of whether um, Golden State wins or not. Had 34 points on 48% shooting and really just has not missed a beat. Did not look rattled by this Celtics defense at all. But ultimately, it was a symptom of Boston allowing Steph to beat them and basically daring... Draymond, daring Klay Thompson, daring Jordan Poole to rise to Steph Curry's level, which is a particularly dangerous proposition for 99% of teams. However, Boston is able to implement this philosophy because they are absolutely suffocating on defense. Their performances in both Games 1 and Game 2 have been sublime if you have not watched the Boston Celtics at all in these playoffs, and if you haven't, you are, I don't, I think you're an unserious basketball fan because they just play beautiful basketball and defensively between smart, between grant, grant Williams, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Al Horford, um, Derek white. They have, they are the best defensive team in the NBA right now. I know that goal. I know I just said the same thing about golden state, but when, I have been so impressed by Boston's ability to play one-on-one basketball and how quickly they're able to respond to and identify the actions that Golden State runs. And this is even more impressive because as we know, Golden State is one of the most player player movement happy. Um, they have one of the most player movement intense defenses that probably the NBA has ever seen, at least in recent memory. Lots of ball movement, lots of player movement. Their cutting is simply spectacular. Andrew Wiggins is absolutely absolutely thriving under Steve Kerr. And for Boston to snuff out these plays, really before they even begin, I think is a testament to not even just like their willpower, because we can talk about intangibles. We could talk about intangibles until we're blue in the face, which is what a lot of NBA pundits do, but it's their ability. It's just their awareness, their defensive IQ, their switchability, their communication, all of the things outside of effort that make a an elite defensive team. Boston has. I talked about it last week or tried to talk about it last week before my voice blew out on me. That one of the keys to the series and something to watch is Boston's versatility, switchability, interchangeability on defense. And it really gave Golden State problems in game 1. And I think why these first two games have been kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum is because when you have two teams that are this talented, they're not going to figure each other out in the first game. They're not going to figure each other out in the first two games because the way that both of these teams conducted themselves in Games 1 and 2, or Game 1 compared to Game 2, is entirely different. Like, just based off of what's taken place these first two games, I still think that a seven-game series is the most likely possibility. Potentially... It could end earlier if, you know, Golden State just becomes unhinged like we know they're capable of doing. But I don't foresee that. I think that Boston is too strong of a team. However, something that they're going to have to reckon with and what Ime Yudoka is going to have to try and balance is how do you... Pardon me. Uh, I hope I'm not... I hope I don't have to blow my nose that frequently, but... um congestion is still a thing. I think I'm good for right now. But one of the things that Ime Udoka is going to have to really balance is how often he allows Jason Tatum to play one-on-one and how frequently he tries to run a more um like a more team intensive set, like a more traditional half-court set type of thing. Boston in game 2 looked like they were contending up until the third quarter. Now why is this? Of course, as we know, Golden State is one of the freakiest third-quarter teams. It, they, I can't. I really have to stop talking in superlatives, but they, they turn it up coming out of halftime. Now, at the end of the second quarter, Golden State took a 52 to 50 lead. I'm pretty sure because Jordan Poole hit a 49-footer at the buzzer to stretch the lead to three. Um, Wait, no, oh no, am I thinking of at the end of the third quarter? Yes, I'm talking about the end of the third quarter, I apologize. So the um second half, Andrew Wiggins, who had missed like three point blank layups up to that point, finally converted on one, or I think that was his second or his third for the game, whatever, doesn't really matter. And everything pointed to these teams being, you know, as evenly matched as we would have expected, albeit... Jaylen, uh, Jason Tatum had come alive in this first half. Hit five of his seven threes, had 21 points going into the break. Jalen Brown, despite struggling from the field, did manage to have 15. So that's always good. Whenever your stars are putting up points, it doesn't matter the efficiency. I mean, that's actually kind of a lie. But if your star is putting up points that is comparable to his season average and, you know, someone like Jalen Brown using his, um, his you know, his elite slashing ability to get to the line and, you know, get high percentage shots. Sometimes they just don't fall. That's, th- that's just how it goes. Steph Curry had come back down to earth a little bit, but Golden State could have ran away with this game in the second quarter if they had been more efficient inside of the
1: restricted area. As I already mentioned, Andrew Wiggins missed I think like three point blank layups to begin the game not great
0: efficiency obviously coming from one of your premier or not one of your premier options but one of the options that you know is going to have to play well for you to win this series there is also noticeable uh, and a noticeable absence of production from Clay Thompson who shot one of eight in the first half and finished like 4 of 19 for the game just an awful game for Clay who wasn't really like taken out of his game he was just simply not missing shots. Um, commentary, I think it was, I forgot who mentioned it. It was either JVG. I think it was JVG mentioned how Clay just looked out of sorts in regards to his um, his form. Like Boston's defense was causing him to rush his shots. Entirely possible, again, when you have this elite of a defense. So mix of that, a mixture of, again, just a lack of rhythm because although Golden State ran away with this game, their offense was a little disjointed. I mean, the the opening blows in the third quarter were largely the result of just putting Steph Curry in pick-and-roll in which Boston was defending with drop coverage, I believe, with uh, Grant Williams and Daniel Tice. They were defending in drop coverage, and you simply cannot play drop coverage against Steph Curry because even when he's missing, even when the greatest three-point shooter of all time is missing... All it takes is that one, and when he sees that one go down, and he's just going to keep attacking the uh, the four or the five and pick and roll, you have to adapt to that, and I think what also just adds to the Warriors' lethality is that it's so difficult to make these adjustments in real time because it only takes him like two or three minutes to have 9, 10, 12 points That is an unreasonably short amount of time to expect your defense to be able to capitalize on that. Um, You're ultimately just playing with fire, and this is something that Golden State can continue to exploit. I mean, maybe not so much in the opening periods of games when Al Horford is there. You know, like their defensive lineup with uh, Robert Williams, Al Horford, um, you know, Smart, JB, Jason Tatum. That's going to severely limit Steph in the pick and roll just because you can switch everything. You can switch those pick and rolls, and you can play different kinds of coverage. You can blitz. You can trap um, off the win. You can trap it half court if you want to just to get a little freaky. Um, and even if you do play drop coverage, like you can get away with playing drop coverage with Robert Williams because he has his intuition as a, as a shot blocker and his athleticism. Both of those are so high. Compared to other guys his age, that he can close the gap at, in a reasonable amount of time and still really bother Steph's shots, even if he does give up a step. Um, I don't really recall much from Golden State defensively. I mean, they were they were clearly significantly better than game than uh, the fourth quarter of game one. I think that you know, as weird as it is they need to settle in to the finals as well. Like, they haven't been to the finals in a couple of years. You know, they really... They hadn't faced anyone like Boston up until this point. And again, no disrespect to any of the teams that um, Gold State went up against and beat in the playoffs. But, like, they, none of those teams compare to what Boston is capable of doing and also what Boston has done to Miami, Milwaukee, and Brooklyn. So, again, it's just, like, the uncertainty and... It just it's it's so difficult to to game plan in the NBA like leading into like leading into the first game of a playoff series. Like I was talking to one of my friends the other day and this friend of mine is a huge football fan, diehard football fan, and we were talking about like best of sevens versus single elimination games and how the NFL is in this unique position and NFL coaches are in this unique position in the sense that if you're the Bill Belichick or your Sean McVay or your Byron Leftwich or Bruce Arians or your Matt LaFleur and you're going into a game against a specific opponent like if you're Matt LaFleur game planning against Tampa Bay you have a pretty decent idea of what Tampa Bay is going to run against you because you have all this time to prepare you have a week to prepare you have all this all this tape you have all these scouts all these assistants You have a very, very solid idea of what Tampa Bay is going to run against you. The only uncertainty is, can you build the proper game plan to combat it? And are your players also going to execute that game plan? In the NBA, you can have like a philosophical idea of what a team going against you is going to run. Like if I'm Ime Yudoka and I'm going against Golden State, what do I know about this team? I know that Andrew Wiggins is an elite cutter. I know that they love to swing the ball. I know that they love to operate with Draymond Green at the top of the key. I know you have to keep eyes on Steph Curry and Klay Thompson at all times. Watch them on the baseline. You also have to watch when Steph gets a shot up. Where is is he going on the offensive rebound? Is he going to call for the ball at the top of the key, or is he going to mosey on down to the corner and try to get, you know, like a cheesy little shot. Those are things that you have to worry about and you can't really anticipate when they're going to happen because there is so much uncertainty in a in a basketball game. Like you just ha- you have to absorb the punches and then just run your game plan on offense and hope that Tatum and Brown and Smart can at least get close to what we expect of them. Like that's the balancing act. But that's also kind of why the seven game series is so necessary in these sports because like we see in March madness, it's not necessarily always the best team that makes a D de- that um wins whatever game. Like that's why there are lower seeds that make deep runs into playoffs into uh into the tournament because you can get lucky a couple of times. You can get lucky in your first and second round games, but then once you go against like one of the really strong teams then it comes down to talent. You can't get lucky in a seven-game series. I don't care if it's hockey, baseball, um, basketball. You can't get lucky four games in a row or four four times out of seven. It just doesn't happen. And this is why, you know, these teams have kind of been all over the place because they're still feeling each other out. They're still getting used to each other because all the individual players also do kind of have to adapt how they play. You know, Steph, as much as, you know, he would maybe love to play in isolation a little bit more, he can't because he's being guarded by the defensive player of the year. Or if he's not being guarded by Marcus Smart, he, ha- he has a, sig- a significant size disadvantage against
1: Jalen Brown and against Jason Tatum. It's just the nature of it. And I'm really sorry, I have to blow my nose. I can hear
2: myself becoming nasally. allergies are really fucking me up man
1: Ugh. so it's really like still kind of tough
0: for me to uh expect what to see over the next couple of games i do still feel confident in my pick warriors and 7 even after game 1 which i managed to fall asleep during the uh the fourth quarter i guess that's just how sick i was uh i i just like woke up and it was the next morning, and I had no recollection of anything. I didn't even know. I didn't even know that the Warriors lost until I checked and saw that Boston put up a forty burger. In <laughs> until I saw that they put up a forty burger in the um, in the fourth quarter. Now, just to shift off of this, there has been a little bit of news to come out. Nothing crazy. Um, at least if you're not a Jazz fan, it's not crazy. So Quinn Snyder has announced that he will be stepping down as head coach of the Utah Jazz. I have this video on ESPN. I'm just going to very quickly shift on over to this.
3: For long, if I was running Utah's team, because I would blow it up. I mean, so how many times in the postseason are we going to see underachievement? Donovan Mitchell, I love Donovan Mitchell. He's part of that. I mean, they're in the same position as a number of other teams they are not good enough for expectations to be greater we've seen this in the bubble we've seen it since the bubble it's entertaining to watch it finishes the number one seed in the whole league and couldn't get it done couldn't get out the second round blow it up their best player on the perimeter donovan Mitchell, is all nba performer and their best player on the interior rudy gobert is a defensive player of the year candidate.
0: all right i do not expect to see some analysis from uh, Mike Wobon, so instead, I'll just read the article. Yay for reading. Utah Jazz coach Quinn Snyder has resigned after eight seasons with the franchise. The team announced on Sunday, Jazz ownership and management spent several weeks trying to convince Snyder to return as coach, even offering a contract extension, but he simply decided that his time had come to step away from the job sources, told ESPN's Woj. Snyder had two years left on his contract, including his own option for the final year. Snyder, who underwent hip surgery after the season has been recuperating back to full health. If he decides to make himself a candidate for other coaching jobs in the future, it is expected that Snyder would be a high priority for almost any team with an opening. In a statement, Snyder said he was grateful for his time with the Jazz, but that his decision came down to what was best for the team's players quote at the core and what drives me every day is our players and their passion for the game their desire to constantly work to improve and their dedication to the team and the jazz i strongly feel they need a new voice to continue to evolve that's it no philosophical differences no other reason after eight years i just feel it's time to move onward i needed to take time to detach after the season and make sure this was the right decision obviously the jazz are undergoing a new head coaching search because they kind of have to um Snyder had amassed a 372 and 264 record in his eight seasons with the jazz matching Steve Kerr for the third longest tenure with the team among active head coaches, trailing only Greg Popovich and Eric Spolstra uh, Snyder's 372 wins are the second most in franchise history trailing hall of famer, Jerry Sloan's 1,100 and 12 after inheriting a franchise coming off a of 25 and 57 sneeze Snyder played a prominent role in Utah, becoming a perennial playoff team. Yada, 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 uh, quote, Quinn Snyder has embodied what jazz basketball is for the last eight years, said uh, Ryan Smith, at least I think that's his name, uh, in a statement the tireless work ethic and attention to detail Quinn displayed each day is a testament to the professional that he is. I have nothing but admiration and respect his decision. So, Quinn Snyder comes to Utah for the 2014-15 season, I believe it was, and team looked pretty, pretty different at that point, obviously you had Gordon Hayward there. You had Paul Millsap, I believe. Um, no, I'm lying. They didn't have Paul Millsap until uh, until recently. So you have Gordon Hayward. You do eventually draft Rudy Gobert, and then in that time, you take the Jazz from you know being a lottery team to being on paper one of the elite teams in the Western conference, but they had, they were unable to really turn that into anything substantial. And when I got this no when I got this notification, um, I was like, I knew right off the bat that a lot of this had nothing to do with, or it had little to do with Snyder's performance, I should say, and was just him feeling that the players needed a new voice in the locker room. Um, I think it's a little bit of both, and I think that the front office is also liable, but we'll get into that in a second. Quinn Snyder, being a head coach for eight years in this NBA climate is it—it's almost unheard of. Like Coaches don't really last that long unless they are experiencing lavish success, like the, su- the success that Steve Kerr has had, like the success that Eric Spolster has had, like the success that um, Rick Carlisle had before being or before moving to Indiana. Snyder managed to keep his managed to keep his job despite the team never reaching a Western Conference Finals, despite them having you know more than 50 wins three times. And I think that Snyder ultimately just took the team as far as he could. I don't know if he is a championship. Caliber coach, um, I do know that he is a very, very, very good head coach, as evidenced by his performances with these teams. But the issue, more so than maybe the players potentially tuning him out or like no longer buying into his system, is something that I've harped on. Is something that many other pundits have harped on, and it's the idea, and really not the idea, but the fact that Utah. Is simply not good enough to contend for a title at this point. They do not have a roster that is worthy of representing the Western Conference in the NBA Finals, and they're sure as shit don't have a roster worthy of bringing home an NBA or bringing or winning the NBA Finals. They simply don't. Outside of Donovan Mitchell, and I and I disagree with Mike Wilbon placing some of the blame on Donovan Mitchell. If we go over. Just to peep this guy's stats real quick. He is an all-NBA caliber player, averaged 26 points a game this year, shot 45% from the floor, which is quite staggering for someone taking 20, 20 shot attempts a night, nearly 21 shot attempts a game. Like, there is so little blame to be placed on Donovan Mitchell. And I think most of it falls down to the front office failing to surround donovan mitchell with more adequate playmakers like you have rudy gobert but you're not winning a title with rudy gobert as your as your number two i talked about this when there was that quote-unquote report that rudy gobert issued utah an ultimatum of it being him or donovan mitchell which obviously everyone knows how that would go but they gave him jordan clarkson who's a quality player but not a star not an adequate complimentary star they gave him mike conley again not a complimentary not an adequate complimentary star he never had a DeMar DeRozan to his Zach Levine he never had a Chris Middleton to his Giannis he doesn't have a Kyrie Irving to his Kevin Durant which is what Utah needs in order to be successful because otherwise they have they check every other box as a championship team they have a dynamic scorer As their franchise cornerstone they have an elite defense they have an elite rim defender in Rudy Gobert who is arguably defensive player of the year one of the best defenders of the last uh, like 15 years or so they do have a decent amount of depth as well um you have Royce O'Neal obviously uh again Mike Conley Boyan Bogdanovich of course this team was weaker than their past teams and you know losing um Joe Ingles to injury and then eventually trading him um but they did have depth in previous seasons which is which is crucial for teams looking to contend for a championship but you know there's only so much that Quinn Snyder can do with this team he really he just like he was maxed out his talents as coach were maxed out and i don't think he's going to have an issue finding work elsewhere I wouldn't mind him being the next head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. I mean, he's young. He's 55 years old, so he's a relatively young guy in comparison to some other coaches. Like, I mean, he obviously knows how to win at a high level with a quality team. He's got, you know, a couple of years as an assistant. I'm looking at his uh, basketball reference page now. Spent time with the Clippers, although it was one year back when he was 26. He then went to Philadelphia with the Lakers, the Hawks. Like, this guy knows how to coach. And I think anyone who's saying that he doesn't is just straight up lying to you. But he, I, he, he had to have seen the writing on the wall after back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back years of failing to make any serious noise in the playoffs. He, he was at the end. Like, this team reached their potential with him as head coach. And it's sad because he, he's a quality coach. I don't think, again, no one's going to no deny that. But the writing was on the wall. And in regards to Mike Wilbon saying blow it up, I don't think you blow it up right away because um let's not forget, you do have Donovan Mitchell, you do have him on an extension, you have him until the 20, 24, 25 season, and then he has a player option for the following year. So you have the you have prime Donovan Mitchell years coming up. And Mike Wilbon's first inclination is is to blow it up and waste these years of a potential all-NBA in, in all-NBA team
1: earner who's still only like 26 years old, 25 years old or something. That is absolutely preposterous. If
0: anything, you blow it up, you yeet Rudy Gobert to wherever, and you know you actually build a team that adequately complements... Donovan Mitchell. I mean, you bring in someone like Bradley Beal, potentially. Like, I know there aren't really many guys on the market. I know Zach Levine has free agency this year. I don't know if maybe you could facilitate, like, a sign-and-trade. I highly doubt that would happen. But, I mean, you know, if... I mean, Chicago would be stupid. They would definitely be dumb to, you know, sign-and-trade Zach Levine when they don't even know what their team looks like fully healthy. Um, but that's a possibility. I don't think you blow it up quite yet. If anything, you blow it up two, three years down the line after you fail to properly build this team because the oddity is that this team's gotten better since Donovan Mitchell has got there, but they haven't gotten worse, at least on paper, which, you know, is something. And I think that's what helped Quinn Snyder keep his job is that, you know, they're beating teams in the regular season, but their flaws are exposed in the playoffs, which ultimately is... When it matters, so you try to build a team like Golden State. You try to build a team that has modern sensibilities. Although Utah has modernized quite heavily, um, you just, I I think you exhaust all of your options before blowing it up. Like that is just so, that's so short-sighted to say blow it up when they're really there really, when really there's no indication that you need
1: to blow it up. Now, of course, speaking of blow it up, I found this absolutely crisp
2: video. What the fuck? Why does hold on, what the fuck?
1: Why does it keep saying welcome to the chat room? On my uh
2: On my Twitch chat. This is so What
1: the fuck? This is so weird. I'm sorry. I'm like working through this in real time.
2: What is happening? What the fuck? Okay, anyway,
1: um, let's go ahead and watch this absolutely juicy video that talks about,
0: <laughs> that once again talks about Donovan Mitchell <laughs> to the Knicks, man. This is... This is awesome.
3: Dyson Daniels, Malachi Branham, Ty Ty Washington among the players to work out at the Knicks facility here. As we get closer to the NBA draft, all of those players project somewhere near where the Knicks are picking at 11.00 in the draft and I'm sure the Knicks will continue their workouts of prospects as you get closer to the draft in late June. Something else that will continue is speculation about Donovan Mitchell and Utah coach Quinn Snyder and the team announcing that Snyder was going to step down on Sunday and that just leads to questions about uh, the organization's future, the direction there and Donovan Mitchell's future and that's just the nature of the NBA. But my read on this based on people uh, that I trust around the league, they say that The Snyder move down is going to impact Rudy Gobert's future more so than Donovan Mitchell because it makes it more likely that Gobert gets moved. With regards to Donovan Mitchell, uh, the connection here with the Knicks is Johnny Bryant, the Knicks associate head coach who is going to get consideration from Utah for that opening. Bryant and Donovan Mitchell incredibly close, developed a very close relationship when Bryant was in Utah, so it'll be interesting to see how things play out there. But if you want to talk about uh, potential Knicks trades for Donovan Mitchell, you know, other teams and and people closely associated with the situation wonder how much the Knicks would have to give up in that deal. And because the price would likely be so high, how much they would have left on this roster uh, in the wake of a potential Donovan Mitchell trade. So it's just something to think about as we proceed here. How much would this roster be gutted if the Knicks wanted to go out and try to get Donovan Mitchell from Utah? Exactly,
0: man. Like, I'm glad that Ian Begley, Ian Beagley, who, you know, is a reputable, who's a reputable reporter, you know, someone who I I don't, someone who doesn't draw my eye or when I see them on the timeline, um, is basically just like, yeah, man, this is all conjecture. And I'm sure him being a part of SNY, him being a part of, Knicks Twitter and just NBA Twitter in general knows that this is how shit goes. Like this is how this is just how it is with um, with teams like the Lakers with teams like the Knicks, you know, premier premier big market teams are just, they're always going to be linked to drawing superstars. I like how he mentioned how, what really every other sensible person is saying in how, Quinn Snyder stepping down obviously impacts Rudy Gobert more than anyone else. I just got done talking about that. How blowing it up is stupid, short-sighted, not really a brilliant move. But also, uh, the the Knicks connection to Donovan Mitchell is also brought about by the fact that he grew up in New York City. Um, At least I think. I know that he's a Mets fan, so he grew up uh,
1: relatively close. Queens I don't know where Elmsford New York is but um it's in Westchester okay so he
0: was born in Westchester um you know went to he went to school in uh New Hampshire or at least in uh went to Brewster Academy I'm not really too caught up on the lore of Donovan Mitchell but I am I do know that him going to the Knicks is at this point very unlikely because also as Ian Begley pointed out the price to acquire a superstar of Donovan Mitchell's caliber both in terms of his in terms of his talent and in terms of his contract will require a lot of gymnastics from the Knicks to make it work. And then how many of these guys will you have to part with because Utah knows that if they blast off and trade away Donovan Mitchell and they trade away Rudy Gobert they know, everyone knows, all parties involved know that it's Utah's priority to bring in young talent, which the Knicks have a fair share of. R.J. Barrett, Mitchell Robinson, um, Obi Toppin, Manuel Quickly, all of these guys who both the Knicks organization and Knicks fans feel should be a part of the team for the long haul are significantly less expendable compared to Randall and Fournier and Derek Rose, like although those guys are good players, they don't have Knicks fans aren't as attached to them because, you know, homegrown talent is always homegrown talent is more endearing towards the fans than guys acquired in free agency. It's just it's just how it goes. And you would have to trade a fair amount of these players to bring in Donovan Mitchell. And I also just don't know if it's worth it because then the Knicks could wind up just being Jazz East and having a team that you know, picks up a considerable amount of wins and then just, you know, qualifies for the postseason, but then is unable to make any serious noise. And like for a lot of teams, getting to the postseason it it's not enough. If you're a rebuilding team, going to the playoffs is cool because it gives you optimism that, you know, you're doing the right things and that you have a reason to keep building on what you've already done. But, you know, for most of the teams it's, you know, cool we got to the playoffs but we want to win a title and if we get bounced in the second round like who gives a fuck so as of now I think that Donovan and Mitchell going to New York is very unlikely of course this is the NBA shit can change so 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 rapidly and it's just
1: no it's just at this point it's like it's certain
2: but you know again anything can happen Um what's next? I know I just I know I just uh I know I just blacked out
0: for
1: a second. I was uh I was checking something. So The other thing that recently had come out was
0: there are all quote all signs point to Kyrie Irving returning to the Brooklyn Nets. Now, this is something that I have not really talked about over the last couple of months because I don't really feel it necessitates a conversation. Because it's pretty obvious that if the Nets want to contend for a title, they will bring Kyrie Irving back. If they don't want to contend for a title, they will not bring Kyrie Irving back. Because as it stands, Kyrie is your best option at point guard. Can't trade for John Wall. Can't trade for Russell Westbrook. I mean, you could. And I did see this fucking dogshit article that said, uh, from a logical standpoint, um, it makes sense to trade Russell Westbrook for Kyrie Irving. I didn't read it because it was dog shit. I don't think that it makes any logical sense, at least from a basketball perspective. But the little snippet that was on Twitter was that the Lakers are tired of Russell Westbrook and the Nets are tired of Kyrie Irving. And I'm like, okay, that's just philosophical bullshit. Um, Russell Westbrook does not fit on the Lakers and Kyrie Irving fits on the Nets. It's just where the Nets are just, you know, appropriately worried about his... Commitment, His commitment to the team, which I give a little bit of credence to because this whole thing with the COVID vaccine, um, you know, fucked up everything. And although there is the chance that something like that happens again, up until this point, Kyrie really didn't have anything. He didn't have any baggage that was pertinent to that. I mean, he's missed time with injuries and stuff. And you know he does seem to be a he does seem to be a little bit of an interesting character at least in the locker room, but ultimately he's a fantastic basketball player, and he's a winning basketball player as well, and no one's gonna debate that. However, the uh, the New York Post, the dirty rag that is the New York Post, published an article
1: from Brian Lewis that comes with the title. Uh, pardon me comes with the title,
0: All Signs Pointing to Kyrie Irving returning to Brooklyn. Now I don't particularly care for the New York Post. Um I think a lot of like their um I think the the New York Post's politics are dog shit. Um they're they're a right wing tabloid, like obviously they're dog shit and just like uh, just a lot of their content fucking sucks. But I think that Brian Lewis is a good guy. He seems like a very uh, reasonable reporter and you know I really don't have any reason to rail against him. So, shout out to Brian Lewis. This starts despite a report that the Nets are outright unwilling to re-sign Kyrie Irving long-term and speculation about him being being traded. All indications strongly point to a reunion between between Brooklyn and its All-Star Point guard Irving has until the 29th of June to decide whether he will opt out of the final $36.5 million year of his contract for 2022-23 and become a free agent, but both the Nets and league sources told the Post an extension is more likely. Quote, It'd be unfair for me to comment on how it looks with us in Kyrie because, to be quite frank, he has some decisions to make on his own. So he has to look at what he's going to do with his player options, said GM Sean Marks last month. Quote, we're looking, at go- we're looking for guys that want to come in here and be a part of something bigger than themselves, play selfless, play team basketball, and be available. This last one is 100% a dig at Kyrie. And, I'm um, listen... I'm not surprised. Sean Marks is not fucking around. You know, he did a lot of work to put this team in this position. He stuck his neck out a lot. He took on a bunch of bad trades to put this team in the position that he's here. He doesn't want to throw all of that away. But he also recognizes that, you know, you do kind of have to play hardball with superstars every so often. Like, we all get it. This is the player empowerment era. The players are the ones that, di- that dictate stuff behind the scenes. But any, you know, any self-respecting GM is not going to let the players walk all over him. Like, if you're, if you're a coach or you're a GM and you want the players to respect you, you do have to push back on them sometimes. You have to be a, you have to be a strong personality because that, you know, that shows that it's like, okay, this guy's not fucking around. You know, he's in it. He's in it. He's in it with us. Like, if you're passionate enough to go back and forth with me, you know, I know that you have my best interests at heart. Irving has played just half the possible game since arriving on a max deal in 2019, missing 123 of 226 regular season tilts. That's led to reports and speculation about the Nets either refusing to sign him long-term or dealing him, with the Athletic disputing a rumored deal to the Lakers for Russell Westbrook. Again, there's no credence to any of these deals because they're just trying to... They're just trying to create content okay a lot of these deals are simply to just draw up interest in the league during a time when there really is no news going on because it's the finals and it's the playoffs and all that like a lot of this shit is bullshit unless you're hearing it from Woj or Shams or Chris Haynes or Zach Lowe it's bullshit but Irving is still not only close friends with KD but maintains a good relationship with team owners Joe and uh, Clara Clara Wusai the post reported last month that a return to Brooklyn appeared of a fate Accompli and sentiment around the league is Irving will resign. Fate Accompli, I'm not
1: really too um too good with my latin here. I think it's like like a predetermined or some shit. Yeah, I don't know. It's fate basically. They're trying to get a trying to get a little fancy, a little cultured on us. But
0: I most I agree. Most likely, he comes back. A league source well versed in the salary cap told the Post. As for a contract, I love this. I love this. Uh, this attribution here. A league source well versed in the salary cap. As for a contract, I'd probably try to get him back at an annual rate, at an annual rate at what he's currently making. They could give him a contract below the max with unlikely incentives that allows him to reach the max. Unlikely incentives are capped at 15% of a play, player's salary in a given year, so they can make his salary 15% less than the max, then give incentives to allow him to grow to the full max. He would have to opt out and negotiate a new contract with these incentives. I think that nowadays, players are more likely to take shorter contracts anyway. LeBron famously does two-year plus one, or a one and one contract. Like, that also... That allows the stars to maintain flexibility in their um in their destinations, but it also allows them to maximize their earnings because either the franchise is going to front load or back load an extended contract. In the case of someone like Kyrie Irving, you would probably front load it because he will be out of his prime soon and his production is going to start to decrease. And you know, avoiding a long term deal altogether again allows the athlete to maintain a relatively consistent. Um, salary throughout two, three years or whatever. Irving's refusal to adhere to NYC's COVID-19 mandates essentially cost him 53 games and likely contributed to the Nets' early exit from the playoffs. If there is a silver lining, it's that Irving having made just 29 appearances means benchmarks of, 20, of 60, 50, 40, and even 30 games would qualify as unlikely bonuses. And while just 687500 of Irving's about $35 million salary this year, and 718,700, oh my God, okay, I'm fucking, I'm getting lightheaded from reading all these numbers. We're going to stop on that. We're just going to go back to reading um the non-numbers because holy fucking shit, dude. I agree that he will be back. Um, Bobby Marks told the Post, suggesting, quote, a contract that includes games played doesn't trigger every season as it relates to his salary. Uh, one example Bobby, Bobby Marks gave was a three-year extension that was 100% guaranteed in year three if he played 60 games in 2022-23 and 2023-24. Another would be annual $6 million bonuses for logging 65 appearances, i.e., a three-year $138 million deal with $120 million guaranteed and $18 million in unlikely bonuses. "Quote: I think it's best to use the three-year contract with the last year guaranteed if he plays, uh, yeah, if he plays 63 games, whatever." Irving also lost. Um, I'm just shoulder surgery, yada, yada. Uh, quote, this source says, quote, I don't believe so in regards to uh, separating games for injury versus personal reasons. I don't believe so, especially since there are rules saying that incentives aren't allowed for a player being on a roster for a certain amount of time. They also can't be based on how many games a player dresses for slash is eligible to play for. The NBA also doesn't make expectations or exceptions. Holy shit, for COVID absences. So I'm sure
1: it's just games played, period. Um, yeah. In regards to again all of this, um,
0: in regards to all of this fucking uh this Kyrie Irving conjecture, I think he does come back because we can try to justify it. Um, as many times as we want. We can try to justify it as many times as we want, but ultimately, as I mentioned in the beginning, Brooklyn is better with Kyrie than they are without Kyrie. That's a strong case that Kyrie can make and that, you know, the Nets can make to sign him for however much has yet to be determined. I think, yeah, it's probably going to be in like the 30 plus million range for sure, Again, I don't feel that, I don't feel that he's gonna miss more games due to personal slash COVID reasons. I just
1: think that's, I think that's a hater mentality, to be um. To be quite honest, maybe I'm also just like, blindingly optimistic, to um. To this whole situation, but. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's my take on it. The Nets. The Nets are willing to re-sign Kyrie
0: Irving. Kyrie Irving is re- is willing to re-sign with the Nets. I do think there will be quite quite a bit of negotiation going on. But ultimately, yes, Kyrie did play a role in um, Brooklyn's very underwhelming season. However, it's not his fault. Like, there are multiple guys that I can point to for why Brooklyn did not perform well this year. Steve Nash, guy simply cannot coach, Um, unfortunately. Guy is just... Guy is just uh,
1: not a good coach. So, you know, it is what it is. Um,
2: Wait, what the fuck? Okay. Yeah, Steve Nash, really not that great of a
0: coach. Um, Herb Jones, who (laughs) pushed Bruce Brown into Kevin Durant's knee, which caused him to miss uh, like four, five, six weeks, whatever it was. Of course, Joe Harris not being healthy as well. There were more, there was more than just Kevin Durant, there was more than just Kyrie Irving who is um, responsible for Kyrie uh, or for the Nets' early exit. But he definitely, um, he definitely did not, he definitely fucked the team over by missing the first half of the season. That's for sure. But ultimately, like, the more and more that I watched the Nets, the more and more that I began to realize that, they were simply not a championship team and it fucking sucks and they 100% got exposed by the Boston Celtics who just were significantly better in every regard
1: and as much as it pains me to say that that's where we're at right now that's um that's the unfortunate reality i'm trying to look at some um I'm trying
0: to look at some more news. I'm trying to look at some more news, man. There really isn't much going on, at least in terms of, um, you know, the NBA world. But uh, I know Aaron Donald just signed a fatty extension. A fatty, oh, batty extension. Three years. What was it, like three years? $98 million is now the highest-paid played, the highest-paid – the highest-paid defensive player um, – in the league, the Lambs reworked Donald's deal to give him a $40 million raise over the last three years of his contract, making him the first non-quarterback to eclipse $30 million per season. The reworked deal brings the total value of Donald's contract to $95 million over three years. Um, and he's still underpaid. That's the crazy part. Aaron Donald is making $30, $40 million more than he was, and he's still underpaid. Like This is a guy who, since getting drafted eight years ago has come in and essentially dominated the NFL for those eight years very clearly is the best defensive player in the sport it's like an eight-time pro bowler an eight-time pro uh eight-time all pro multiple time defensive player of the year could retire tomorrow and be a first ballot hall of famer um yeah really not enough good things to say about um Aaron Donald oh fuck now actually that I'm thinking about it there was um I, I don't mean to get sidetracked but there was this story that...
1: There was this story that teams in basketball...
2: were. Oh, wait, hold on. Wait. John Wall is trending. After
1: Colin Coward said John Wall has never made a teammate better, uh, he responded with, LOL, this guy's
0: a joke. That's so out of pocket for fucking Colin Coward to say because... I mean, I think we're forgetting. Uh, we, we love, as, as sports media, we love to just forget things. Like, so many of us just love to be um, ignorant to everything. To say that John Wall never made a teammate better is literally just not true. John Wall has never made a teammate better. Russell Westbrook has never made a teammate better. Draymond Green has made every teammate he's played with better. Find me the teammate Westbrook's made better in his career. Like, I mean, Paul George played pretty well alongside Russell Westbrook. Did he not? Am I, misrem- am I misremembering that? I certainly hope I'm not because then I would look like a fucking, I will look like a big idiot. I will look like a tremendous fucking loser. If I misremember this, no, of course. Remember when they played together in uh, 2018-19 and Paul George, I think, was a, a finalist for MVP or, you know, like top five in MVP voting? That's really interesting. It's really interesting that Russell Westbrook never made anyone better, despite the fact that Paul George had the best season of his career when he went to Oklahoma City. I mean, we can say that John Wall never made anybody better, but do we forget that Bradley Beal slowly began to evolve into an all-star caliber player alongside John Wall, who in the who in the um, the prime of his career was a walking double-double, someone who could in his sleep give you twenty points and ten assists. Are we forgetting about that? Are we forgetting about John Wall being arguably the best point guard in the NBA? Of course, before all the injuries. Like we we love to do this. Sports media loves to fucking do this. And I don't understand like I don't understand the benefit of just like being wrong on main like this. Like literally Colin Coward is posting cringe on the timeline. However, I do kind of understand why it happens because when you work for a big media organization like Fox Sports or like ESPN or like NBC, you can just be wrong and it doesn't matter because, you know, you're a celebrity and you're the the organization is still paying you. Whereas if you're an independent content creator, you can't just fucking be cringe on the timeline. I mean, you can, you can be wrong, but then you're just going to become a fucking, then people are just going to look at you like a grifter. And that's not good. I would fucking hate to be a grifter. And like, I'm actually, I've actually been thinking of making like a video on um the waning interest in like traditional sports media and the potential rise of independent content creators, like how we're seeing in the um, like how we're seeing in the political sphere with uh, guys like Hasan Piker and Kyle Kalinske, like YouTube and Twitch guys being the preferred avenue of consumption compared to legacy media outlets like CNN and MSNBC. I think we're gonna start seeing that trend in in sports media as well. And I remember thinking about that after seeing Stephen A. Smith be like. Michael Jordan changes the game for the worse. And that is literally just objectively not true. It, it It's not. And I'm not going to go too into it because that's probably going to be the premise of my video. But if you're if you're at a legacy media outlet, you can just lie straight up.
1: You can just lie. Colin Cowherd here. I'll show you guys. So that I'm not I'm not fucking bullshitting you. This is the tweet, man. This is the tweet.
0: This is the fucking tweet. And then John Wall. Oh, fuck. They didn't show it. And then John Wall is like, LOL, this guy's a joke. True. I mean, I think it was also on Colin Coward's show where I saw that one of his solutions for fixing the three ball was to take away the corner three. Dog, how the
1: fuck? How does that pop into your
2: mind? Like, how, dude? How did you. How did you draft that and
1: think this is a good idea? Take away the fucking three-point line uh, before like anything else. I love it. That's fucking awesome. Um uh what's next? Okay, so getting back to uh getting back to what I actually wanted to uh to talk about. So uh, okay, so there was this um there was this article or this piece written by Zach Lowe, and it it was behind a paywall, but it was talking about Andrew Wiggins, and it was talking about
0: how that trade like, oh, here we go. Awesome, I fucking found it. It was talking about how the um basically how the Warriors trade for Andrew Wiggins like, reignited their uh, championship aspirations. The title of this article, "Low Inside the Trade That Brought Andrew Wiggins to Golden State and the so- Shocking Decisions It Could Force on the Warriors. Uh, I don't think I can, um, yeah, no, I can't access this because it's ESPN+. Plus. But ultimately, the Warriors traded for Andrew Wiggins, and now they're going to have to reckon with extensions for Steph, Clay, Kevon Looney, Gary Payton Jr. Not, uh, not Steph, I'm sorry. Clay, Draymond, Jordan Poole, Kevon Looney and GP2. So, this what we're looking at right now is like an aggregation from Bleacher Report. Some NBA teams reportedly aren't happy that the league's salary cap rules have allowed the Golden State Warriors to keep their deep and talented roster together for the long haul. According to Zach Lowe, some of the Warriors' rivals have been quote unquote grumbling about the quote competitive spending advantage they have over other teams. Per Lowe, the Warriors will soon have to consider contracts for Clay, Dre. Whatever, all the guys I had already mentioned. If GS re signs all of them, Bobby Marks estimates the Warriors could have a payroll of $475 million with the inclusion of luxury tax penalties. So they're looking at half a billion in payroll in probably just those guys alone. As noted by Lowe, this would represent unprecedented spending in NBA history. While maintaining bird rights, to a player allows a team to spend well above the salary cap in order to keep him. Penalties come along with going too far over. The NBA is what is considered a soft cap sport. And what that means is there is a salary cap, but you're allowed to exceed that salary cap as long as the owner is okay with paying luxury tax, which comes out of his pocket. I don't know the luxury tax rate off the top of my head. It's something that's decided with every CBA, I believe, but just know that if you want to pay to win, you essentially can. It, in theory it's not that easy, but you can. However, I also think I don't think that baseball is I think baseball has unlimited spending. I know it's not a hard cap sport because you have a team like the Dodgers who literally just signs every great player. But this gripe from other teams is bullshit, and I'll get to I'll get to why. I just want to finish this article, the Warriors spend a significant amount of money in luxury tax and is pointed out by Lowe, tens of millions of dollars go from the Warriors to other NBA teams as a part of revenue sharing and payments to teams that aren't above the luxury tax threshold. Lowe also re- reported that some NBA teams that the Warriors conceivably being among them have proposed the idea of a discount against the luxury tax when it comes to contracts of homegrown players. Fuck that. If you're going to go over the cap, you're going over the cap. You're getting the baseline rate. I don't give a fuck about these billionaire owners wanting to save money on their sports team. Fuck that. If you buy a sports team, you're in it to win. You're not in it to make money. And I'll expand on this in a second. This hasn't happened yet, but it would give big spending teams like the Warriors some relief if it ever adopted. For now, the Warriors can spend at their discretion when it comes to keeping players in-house, and not much can be done to stop them. While Steph Curry remains under a long-term deal, Wiggins is an unrestricted free agent, and Poole is a restricted free agent after next season. Green can also enter free agency next season if he hops out, otherwise he'll be a free agent during the summer of 2024, as well as Thompson. The core of Thompson, Curry, and Thompson, Curry, and Green are well into their 30s, but keeping them for as long as possible makes sense from the Warriors' perspective, since they can help with the transition of younger team of younger players like Poole, Jonathan Kuminga, Moses Moody, and James Wiseman. The mix of youth and experience has served the Warriors well this year as they're back in the NBA Finals, yada yada. So, my gripe with this, and why I think that this is bullshit, and what I'm talking about is precisely competitive advantage, I... I don't like when owners bitch and scream and moan and piss all over themselves because of the salary cap. And the reason is that I think almost every NBA team is owned by a billionaire or a multi-billionaire. Which means that they have the money to be able to spend on their team,
1: but they don't want to. And I know that their money isn't liquid. I get it. But they can liquidate some of their assets to put towards the
0: team. They could also probably just do a fucking, they could probably also just like manage um, some sort of exchange since it's technically going from one business to another business. They could probably finagle that. I mean, they're billionaires. Like no, it doesn't, nothing applies to them. They don't, they don't abide by the regular laws of finance like us working class people do. But they they choose not to spend. Owners choose not to spend. Owners choose not to pay guys what they want. Owners choose not to keep teams together. The reason that Golden State has managed to be together for so long is that Golden State wants to spend. Ownership wants to spend. They don't care about the luxury tax. Or at least they don't care about the luxury tax because it's bringing them championships. Because... What these billionaire, uh, what these billionaire business owners fail to understand is that purchasing a sports team is not like purchasing any other business. It's not a profitable business, okay? Sports teams are they, I'm not sure like the exact numbers. I know the NBA as a league makes a lot of money. But they have a lot of expenses and the expenses are even more so for the teams when you're looking at payrolls of anywhere from like 90 to 130 million dollars before luxury tax. But people buy these teams because they want to diversify their portfolio and they want to run it like a traditional business, which doesn't work because the fans don't give a fuck if the business makes money or not. It doesn't apply to them. They don't give a fuck. I mean, they're spending their hard-earned money to go and watch this team. They're not spending their money to access a spreadsheet. They want to see this team be successful, and they want to see this team win championships. And owners, ownership, upper management, I've talked about this in the past as well, upper management is at a... They're always at odds. Not always, but most of the time, a lot of ownership groups and a lot of management classes are at odds with the labor class. The labor class in this instance being the players and the coaches. Although financially the labor class is more well off than the ownership class or than like the management class, it's because the union is structured that way, which which is good. But the players and the coaches want to win. But ownership and upper management wants to make money. And you're not going to you're not going to be able to build a successful organization if you follow the profit motive not gonna happen it simply won't work because your strategy at the end of the day is going to clash with it's gonna clash with the rest of your employees the employees who, who are more integral to the success of your team arguably than you are all you have to do is find the right places and most of the time you're consulting the players and the coaches because so many of these fucking business freaks don't understand athletics. Okay there are a tremendous amount of incompetent people incompetent people who work in um who work in the four major sports leagues which is why so many teams are bad for so long it's because these guys have no idea what the fuck they're talking about and a good owner will one stay out of the day-to-day operations stay out of the stay out of the day-to-day operations of basketball and two figure out how to surround themselves with the properly educated people. And when I say stay out of, I mean, you can sit in on the decision-making process. Like if you're truly invested, like if I had $10 billion, which I hope I never do. If I had $10 billion and I was able to buy the Brooklyn Nets, I would. But me being a basketball fan beforehand, I would try, I would try to be more of like Mark Cuban or Steve Ballmer. People who are just there who enjoy watching the games, who just appreciate the sport for what it is. Would I want to sit in on basketball operations meetings? Yeah, I think I would. I think it'd be cool just to, you know, learn a little bit, but I wouldn't be up my team's ass like promoting all of these fucking um bullshit like these bullshit idea ideas like there I remember when um I remember when we were doing the fucking Um, Robert Sarver um, racism allegation the toxic workplace um, toxic workplace um, allegations I think it was Earl Watson or whoever was the coach at the time was talking about how one day Robert Sarver comes into the, um, the coach's office and is asking and is drawing up a play where he has a pick and roll being set in the paint and he's like why can't you do that and the team had to explain to him that you can't fucking run a pick and roll in the paint because that's not how basketball works because there's no spacing down there because there are already multiple bodies collapsing onto the ball handler and you're just going to make his job significantly worse like that's how a lot of owners function and it's not exclusive to basketball it's exclusive to baseball it's it's i mean it includes baseball it includes football really um, at least in American sports, I don't know how teams operate, like, outside. Like, I don't know how the Premier League operates in England. I don't know how... Um, um, I know in Formula One, like, the um, the team principals are heavily involved. But I also don't know if Christian Horner and Toto Wolf and uh, Mattia Benotto are giving, like, race instructions to their drivers. Like, they allow the engineers to do that. They're just kind of more of, like, again... They're more of, like, a coach in that regard but like it's good for the owner to be involved as long as they know their limitations and when it comes to this again when it comes back to the uh, competitive spending advantage these guys are just babies like they're whenever you talk about competitive advantages in sports a lot of it is bullshit because unless a player is doing something that's like blatantly egregious like if they're doing copious amount of uh, steroids or just like doing shit that is straight up illegal although in baseball I think steroids are fine as long as everyone's using them that's my hot take is that baseball should allow performance enhancing substances as long as they allow everyone to use peds like let the players take steroids let all the players take take steroids let all of the pitchers use sticky stuff so that way everyone is just like juiced to the gills and they're launching baseball's 700 feet but as long as no one's like doing anything crazy I mean even then like sports are still unfair like this is a conversation that happens all the time in regards to trans athletes and they talk about how um trans women playing athletes have an unfair biological advantage and they just totally ignore the fact that literally all athletes have biological advantages even compared to one another like are you going to look at LeBron James and Steph Curry and say that LeBron doesn't have biological advantages. This dude is 6'8", 260 and is the freakiest one of the freakiest athletes the NBA has ever seen. And when it comes down to, you know, the idea of other advantages, Steph was the fucking son of an NBA player. This guy was playing one-on-one against Charlotte Hornets players when he was 8 years old. So it's like sports are full of unfair advantages, but the monetary one is uh, is the great equalizer because you can choose to build a contender you can choose to keep a team together if they're performing well but a lot of owners just fucking don't want to and it's so stupid that they're screeching it's so stupid that they're screeching about it Uh, anyway with that I think I'm going to uh I think we're going to close out this episode. Once again, thank you guys so much for coming to hang out with me. Everything I'm associated with is down in the description box below. Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. Um, Subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. It's where I post highlights from this show. If you came through, you're watching on Twitch, go ahead and follow the Twitch channel. I go live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern. If you're listening to this on um, a podcast platform, like, subscribe, leave a review, tell a friend about it if you like it, tell a
1: friend if you Didn't like it. All press is good press. And with that, I'll catch you guys in the next one.